next guest um, is our final guest tonight. Um, the etymologicon, I've been trying really hard to get the pronunciation correct, is a circular stroll through the hidden connections of the English language. And I thought I was a smart arse until I picked this book up um, and discovered how all Christians are cretins what shooting pool has to do with chickens, um, why black is really white. Um, and I got two copies of the book for Christmas, which is at least part of the reason why it was uh, the Christmas number one book. Please welcome Mark Forsyth. Uh, hi, thank you. Thank, you, thank, thank you all for coming. And um, I'm afraid I've never been mistaken for Jonathan Dimbleby uh, in my entire life. Although um, Benedict Cumberbatch once got mistaken for me. That's my only claim to fame. <laughs> uh, I thought I'd start with a, a little bit of a reading from, um, uh, which is terribly local and therefore relevant and urgent. And, and the main aim of my book was obviously to be relevant and urgent to urban life in the 21st century. So it comes uh, somewhere in the middle, as you can see. And I've been writing about the American Revolution, uh, the American War of Independence, and its effect on the English language. So, relations between the Royal Navy and the Americans were, as we have seen, fraught. However, it was not always thus. The fault lies with George Washington. George had an elder brother and mentor called Lawrence Washington, who had, in fact, been a British soldier. Specifically, he was a Marine in the Royal Navy. As a recruit from the British Dominions in North America, he served under Admiral Edward Vernon in the Caribbean and was part of the force that seized a strategically important base called Guantanamo, which has some minor position in modern history. Lawrence Washington was very attached to Admiral Vernon. So loyal was he that when he went home to the family estate, which had been called at Little Hunting Creek Plantation, he decided to rename it Mount Vernon. So Washington's house was named after a British admiral. Admiral Vernon's naming exploits didn't end there, though. In 1739, Vernon led the British assault on Porto Bello in what is now Panama. He had only six ships, but with lots of daring do and British pluck, etc., he won a startling victory. In fact, so startling was the victory that a patriotic English farmer heard the news, dashed off to the countryside west of London, and built Portobello Farm in honour of the victory's startlingness. Green's Lane, which was nearby, soon became known as Portobello Lane, and then Portobello Road, and that's why the London market, now one of the largest antiques markets in the world, is called Portobello Market. But Admiral Vernon's naming exploits didn't end there, either. When the seas were stormy, he used to wear a thick coat made out of a coarse material called grogram, from the French gros grain. So his men nicknamed him Old Grog. British sailors used to have a daily allowance of rum. In 1740, flushed from victory at Portobello and perhaps under the pernicious influence of Lawrence Washington, Vernon ordered that the rum be watered down. The resulting mixture, which eventually became standard for the whole navy, was also named after Vernon. It was called grog. If you drank too much grog, you became drunk or groggy, and the meaning has slowly shifted from there to the wages of gin, a hangover. The etymology of alcohol is as unsteady as one would have suspected. For starters, the word alcohol is Arabic. This may seem odd, given that Islam is a teetotal religion, but when the Arabs used the word alcohol, they didn't mean the same stuff that we do. Alcohol comes from al, the, kuhal, which was a kind of makeup. Indeed, some ladies still use coal to line their eyes. As coal is an extract and a dye, alcohol started to mean pure essence of anything. 
There's a 1661 reference to the alcohol of an ass's spleen. But it wasn't until 1672 that somebody at the Royal Society had the bright idea of finding the pure essence of wine. What was it in wine that made you drunk? What was the alcohol of wine? Soon, wine alcohol, or essence of wine, became the only alcohol anybody could remember. And then, in 1753, everybody got so drunk that wine alcohol was shortened to alcohol. Spirits arrived in the drinks cabinet by almost exactly the same route, but this time from alchemy. It's alchemy. There's the Arabic the again. Every chemical is thought to contain vital spirits, little fairies who lived in the substance and made it do funny things. On this basis, gunpowder contained fiery spirits, acid contained biting spirits, and things like whiskey and vodka contained the best spirits of all, the ones that get you plastered. It's odd that whiskey and vodka get you drunk at all, as according to their names, they are both water. Vodka comes from the Russian voda, which means water, and indeed both words come from the same proto-Indo-European root, wodor. The word whiskey is surprisingly recent. It's not recorded before 1715 when it leapt into the lexicon with the sterling sentence, whiskey shall put our brains in a rage. <laughs> Philologists, though, were reasonably agreed that it comes from the Gaelic whiskabiatha, meaning water of life. Why the water of life? The Scots hadn't made the name up. They merely took it from alchemical Latin. Alchemists who were trying to turn base metal into gold could find consolation for their failure in the fact that it's pretty damned easy to distill alcohol, which they called ardent spirits or aqua vitae, water of life. And it wasn't only drunken Scotsmen who took aqua vitae into their own language. The Scandinavians called their homebrew aquavit without even bothering to translate, and the French called their brandy eau de vie. However, the water of life is also a delightful euphemism for urine. This should be drunk in moderation. Muraji Desai, who was Prime Minister of India, used to start every day by drinking the liquor brewed in his own internal distillery, which he always referred to as the water of life. Desai claimed that Gandhi had taught him the trick, although the Gandhi Institute denies this vehemently and says that Desai's story is a balderdash. And as, as you can see, the book is all about the connections between words or between the origins of words, which you wouldn't quite have expected. And it's, it was great fun to write because you, you, you take something terribly familiar and trace it backwards or forwards or sideways and across continents and round corners. And you find that something that you thought you knew um, has a meaning which, which goes back uh, thousands or sometimes uh, tens of thousands of years. But uh, so I thought I would um, shift shift on to uh, a certain cafe that everybody knows and um, which starts in a little uh, stream in Yorkshire. The Vikings were horrid people to whom history has for some strange reason been very indulgent. Whether it was the rape, the killing or the human sacrifice that you objected to, it was probably a bad thing when the Vikings arrived at Lindisfarne in 1793 and then began to work their way down the northeast coast of England. They quickly got to Yorkshire, and near what is now Harrogate, one of them found a sedge-strewn stream and decided to call it sedge-stream. Except, of course, he didn't call it that because sedge-stream would be English. He called it sedge-stream in Old Norse, and the Old Norse for sedge-stream is Starbeck. Starbeck is now a little suburb on the eastern edge of Harrogate. The stream is still there, although it's no discernible sedge, and it runs quite a bit of its way underground in a pipe next to the railway tracks. The place name is first recorded in 1817, but as we've seen, it must go back to the Vikings, and we also know that there were people there in the 14th century. These people had sex, as people almost invariably do, and produced a family. The family were named for the place where they lived, 
almost, one vowel was changed. The Starbuck family are first recorded living in just the right area in 1379. Since then, two things have happened. The Quaker movement was founded and America was discovered. The result of this double catastrophe was that among the first settlers of Nantucket near Cape Cod was a Quaker family whose name was Starbuck. Exactly how much they quaked is not recorded, but they did become big players in Nantucket's biggest trade, whaling. The Starbuck family took up their harpoons with a vengeance. They were soon the most famous whalers in Nantucket, if not the world. In 1823, Valentine Starbuck was chartered by the King and Queen of Hawaii to take them on a trip to England, where the unfortunate royal pair died of measles. Obed Starbuck discovered Starbuck Island in the Pacific and named it in honor of his cousin. A little over 20 years later, a man called Herman Melville began to write a novel about whales and whaling. Specifically, he wrote about a ship called the Pequod, setting sail from Nantucket to hunt a white whale known as Moby Dick. Melville had been a whaler himself and had heard of the famous Starbuck whalers of Nantucket, so he decided to call the first mate of the Pequod Starbuck in their honor. Moby Dick wasn't a very popular novel at first. Most people, especially the British, couldn't make head or tail of it, though this was largely because the British edition was missing the last chapter. However, in the 20th century, novels that nobody could m- can make head or tail of became very much the fashion, and Moby Dick was taken up by all and sundry, especially American school teachers who have been inflicting its purple bros on children ever since. There was one particularly English teacher, in, sorry, particular English teacher in Seattle who loved the book. His name was Jerry Baldwin. Baldwin and two friends wanted to start a coffee shop. They needed a name, and Jerry Baldwin knew exactly where to find the right one, in the pages of Moby Dick. He told his business partners of his fantastic idea. They were going to call the coffee shop... Wait for it. Pequod. His business partners pointed out, quite rightly, that if you're planning to open a shop selling potable fluids, you probably don't want the name to contain the syllable P. That's just bad marketing. So Baldwin was overruled, and the others started looking for something a little more local. On a map of the area, they found an old mining settlement in the Rocky Mountains called Camp Starbo. Baldwin's two partners decided that Starbo was a great name, but Jerry Baldwin was not to be defeated. He suggested they compromise with a little alteration to the second syllable that would make the name match the Pequod's first mate, Starbucks. The three of them agreed, and that Viking's name for a little stream in Yorkshire became one of the most famous brands in the world. But the high street might be a different place. If Baldwin had remembered that Moby Dick was based on a real white whale that was said to have fought off over 100 whaling parties in the Pacific of the early 19th century, that whale was called Mocha Dick. I love the kind of little nods that I could hear happening behind me as everyone felt cleverer than when they derived. Think of the pub quizzes that you can know when. Um, I absolutely love this, Johnny. I found it exhilarating but also slightly exhausting. The pace that you go at is unbelievable. I mean, how? how I mean, I know it's based on the blog, so let's mm. let's start with that first of all. Do you do the, the blog still done every day? Uh, I do the blog three times a week now. Right. Is, uh, yeah. I, I calm down. I relax and calm down. Right. And, and the, the stuff that, that's in there, it's so dense. I mean, where did you go to research it? Did you spend lots of time in the London Library? or where, where uh, were the British you? Library. British yeah. Library. Yeah, um, uh, ordering up strange books and uh, 
uh, searching through them and finding finding out all those odd facts, like the fact that uh, the first uh, when um, Moby Dick was published in Britain, it was missing the, the last chapter, which was. Is that? I, I mean, I'm not going to say is that. Ju that just seems spectacular. That people didn't know that. I love that critics would have been reading it, praising it, and talking about how wonderful it is. Little they knowing they didn't, they or they said hated it. It was incomprehensible nonsense for the obvious reason that it doesn't have a last <laughs> chapter. <laughs> I mean, a lot, a lot of Moby Dick yeah. is incomprehensible nonsense anyway. But you know, without the last chapter, you're you're kind of missing a sense of closure. So, how long did you spend in the British Library? Uh, it took me a bit over three months to write. Right. God, that's incredibly yeah. fast. All these yeah. writers in the room going, bloody hell, <laughs> God. And it was a number one bestseller, no envy. Wow. Um, and so where did the inspiration come from for the for the blog? I mean, phil, 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 say it, I can't say it. Philology. 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 Yeah. yeah. Uh, obsession with words. Yeah, just an obsession, an interest in passion for words and a brain like a rubbish dump. I've got a sort of foolishly retentive memory that stores all these silly stories. And so I thought I'd start writing about them. And it's, it's, it's basically that it's funny. Philo uh, etymology is, is so absurd that um, I find it irresistible. Let's talk then in that case about fuck. Ah, yeah. Because that's, not, that's, th that's one of the words that you talk about, or is it one of the words that you talk about, is people think it was an abbreviation like, like posh the, and the like shit. Yeah, there's a myth that it's a fuck as an acronym for for un for unlawful carnal knowledge, which is absolute fucking crap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's foudre oh. uh, in French is, I think, cognate with it. Although no one's really sure where fuck comes from because it, it goes appears to go back to Anglo-Saxon, though no one's quite. I can't actually remember whether I've mentioned in the book because it's terribly speculative. There is a village in. Uh, uh, mentioned in a treaty of offer in it must be the uh, 8th century called Fuckerum, which may possibly, <laughs> just possibly be the first reference to fuck, meaning home of the fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> but the first definite mention is 14th century and would appear to be, um, uh, appear to be Anglo-Saxon, though nobody's really sure, it just it pops up in a, in a poem about monks having sex with housewives in Ely. That's right, it does. <laughs> I, I, I was surprised to learn that as well. Um, and so much of the stuff in the, in the, you just mentioned there, the Anglo-Saxon, um, th there are layers of language that you go through. And when you get to the Anglo-Saxons, you, you, you talk about the fact that they either subsumed or annihilated the Celts and their language. And there are only sort of three or four words that you could find. Um, yeah, there's three words, I think, that we took from the Anglo-Saxons. Three words from an entire language. Yeah. Which is very, very odd, because usually, even if, you, even if you massacre all the men, you usually keep the women and children to, you know, have, you know for, for rape and fun things like that. Where, and, and, and therefore pick up a, at least a few words like, ouch, or stop, or please. But, but <laughs> we just picked up nothing. Absolutely zero. We got so much more from India. I mean, from uh, the British Empire in India, we came back with bungalows and juggernauts and shampoo and khaki and all sorts of words. But, but, but the Anglo-Saxons took nothing from the Celts. Um, and there are also lots of words which, um, which are invented by individuals, and you cite Milton as being one of the kind of... W I mean, s some of the words that he invented are, are remarkable. Do you want to tell us? Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're lovely. Um, pandemonium is one of my favourites, which is just the name of the palace in Paradise Lost where all the demons live. So it's the opposite of the Pantheon where all the gods 
live. And also, uh, there's so many phrases, like tripping the light fantastic comes from a Milton poem, or um, I was thinking when you were uh, talking about uh, fresh fields, uh, I was thinking of pastures new, which is the last line of a Milton poem, editor tomorrow to fresh woods and pastures new. And we, we still use all these little phrases with no... Um, with no knowledge or without much conscious knowledge that they're from Milton, who was you know, the first guy who said that somebody was all ears, w w was Milton. Um, and what about kind of new words? Um, there aren't that many sort of neologisms in there, the sort of thing that ends up in the, the Oxford English Dictionary or, the, or online. How do, do you have feelings about them? Are, they, are you excited I, about I, those? Or? I love new words, except the, uh, people tend to get far more... Ex I mean, the very new words... People tend to get all excited and put them in the newspaper and say there's... Have you heard about smirting, which is a combination of smoking and flirting? It was what was meant to start when there was a smoking ban in I'd, I'd forgotten all about smirting. Yeah, everyone's forgotten all about smirting because they, they, these words jump out with oh, a massive fanfare and every columnist writes about them. Staycation, that would yeah, be another yeah, one. They, yeah, Horrible. All, all those portmanteau words, they, 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 they never actually... People won't be chillaxing in, in a few years' <laughs> time. God, I absolutely hate chillaxing. <laughs> I just think it's just the saddest thing ever. But anyway, sorry, I could. <laughs> there's a story there. Clearly, I'll I come back to that. Chillaxed in my life. No, well, you don't strike me as somebody who has. Thank. Um, and so uh, there was Milton. There was also um, is it Shelley you talk about at the end? There was some yeah, Shelley. Shelley is lovely. It's the first guy to invent. Uh, he invented the word antenatal, which you, you just didn't see coming. <laughs> it was talking about the possibility of resurrection, and maybe in an antenatal life something had happened to the hero of his obscure and rather dull romantic poem. But, but antenatal comes comes from him. What were the others? There was uh, a, a, a steamship. Um, oh, t let's steamships made me think of Tank. That's a really tank. good one. That's tell the story <laughs> of Tank. Winston Churchill and his... Winston Churchill, were the, 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 there was an idea in the First World War, we, we, Britannia ruled the waves, as everybody knows, and we, we had these huge ironclad destroyers which sailed around the seas, which are pretty much um, unsinkable because they were covered in iron, and they had huge guns on them, and that's how we ruled the waves, but our armies, uh, our, our land warfare was still just based on men and horses. And so there was an idea for a new secret weapon called the land ship in the First World War. And... The idea was it would be a destroyer, it would be like a, a, an ironclad destroyer on the land. And, uh, but it was so incredibly secret that not even the people in the factories manufacturing it were allowed to know the name. And they thought they were, well, the name proposed to Winston Churchill as the code name for the whole project, um, because Winston Churchill was the first secretary of the Admiralty, was uh, water, water carriers for Russia, because there was a Russian front, so that sounded kind of convincing. But Churchill pointed out that um, everyone would think it was WCs for Russia and not take their factory work seriously. <laughs> so he made the, the guy who in, um, was in charge of the operation, who was called Swinton, change the name to Water Tanks for Russia. And um, those that, that, that was a name that stuck, but then um, obviously it turned out they weren't for Russia, so they were just water tanks, and they didn't contain water, so the water got dropped as well. And so that's why you still have tanks. Uh, driving around battlefields. It's all a code name um, insisted upon by Winston Churchill. A round of applause for that explanation. That is remarkable. That is remarkable. The whole thing is. I just love it. It's a sense of puzzling my way through these things. Sylvia.
word for um, can't is kunya, and it's very similar to the word can't. What's the root of all three of them? Because it is pretty much identical. It's a difficult question to do with rabbits and conejos. It's tough and difficult. I can tell you a few things. I can tell you that um, our word kuni, which is another word for rabbit, used to be pronounced cunny, just like honey which is spelt the same way, but then they, the Victorians changed it because it sounded so rude. I can tell you that there are an awful lot of words for the, 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 uh, for, for the uh, ladies' private parts which are uh, small furry animals. I mean, most obviously pussy. Um, I can tell you... What else? Vole? <laughs> I mean, words uh, that dormouse? <laughs> What other uh, small? I'm trying to remember these because I've, I've, I've spent the last few months just reading dictionaries of slang, especially 18th century slang, and they're absolutely full of them. <laughs> um, so I think, I think Vol may actually be in oh there. God. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. That doesn't um, feature in joy at any point, is there? There's no kind of Vol action in the stationary cupboard. Otter? Um, yeah, Otter? Mouse. I mean, you, 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 Otter you, has you a whole other name. meaning, though. Yeah. It doesn't, I mean. Does it? Yeah, well, it's. Uh, uh, no, no, I was thinking more of an otter being a, a, a slimmed-down version of a bear in gay slang. Ah, okay. So, yeah, a hairier, slimmer bear is an otter. Oh, right. You're all learning so much tonight. <laughs> I didn't know what a bear was. A bear. A bear? Oh, a bear. A bear. A bear. Yeah. Sorry. 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 My ac- it's my accent. It's like, uh, do you know where the word gay comes from? No. It's like this. It's, it's like, um, it's like a... a f- they, there used to be a thing um, where you'd ask somebody whether they were a friend of Dorothy. Yes. And it was a sort of coded thing so that if people weren't in on, on it, they'd say, oh, no, I don't know a Dorothy. But if they were, they would say, oh, yes, I am. Um, and the, the, exactly the same thing used to go on in the 1930s, except the, the question was, because gay just meant fun and, you know, merry. The, the, the question you'd ask is, you know, I'm new in town. Do you know any gay bars near here? And either they'd say, oh, there are loads of gay bars. Oh, this is America. They'd say, loads of gay bars. There are some great girls in that one, in which case you knew that they, they weren't in on it. Or they'd say, oh, yes, come with me, my boy. <laughs> and, uh, so I want to hang out with you more. Um, I'll, t- I'll, take, I'll take one more question. You've had a question about rabbits and conejos. Um, one more question at the back. Any more? Any more? Um, what's the next book that you're working on? Because obviously uh, you're doing... I'm, I'm working on a book called The Horologicon, which is... Uh, Sort of the opposite of this, insofar as this is familiar words and where they come from. The horological is going to be words that you've probably never heard of, which have died, or this is why I've been reading lots of 18th yeah. century slang dictionaries, but, but which should be revived. Right, so words that, words that you love that you want to bring back? Yes, exactly. Like? I mean, uh, for example, uh, well, scrouge is one I came up with Oh, that sounds recently. lovely. Scrouge is to annoy somebody by standing too close to them. <laughs> <laughs> and anyone who's ever taken public transport will know scrouge. <laughs> scrouge is back, as of right now. Or scrouge U- is back. Utkeara, which is, you, you know when you wake up before the alarm clock, goes off mm-hmm. and then you just lie there thinking oh god and you know thinking about everything that's wrong with the world that's utkr an old english word so it's kind of the sense of un- the, the, the thoughts the uneasy thoughts that you're having and yes. the annoyance with having been yeah. woken care, early care and anxiety in the period just before dawn right oh god i can't wait for it um thank you to you mark forsyth and to our earlier guest jonathan lee um and thank you all for coming